Because God is our responsibility. Well, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people don't realize. They think that we are God's responsibility. No, no, no. No, no, no. But it's one no, no, of him no, no, no. and, what, 30 yeah. million of us. That's right. So. And God's only hope is us. It's true. No. If we don't make it, he ain't going to make it either. Even. Hey everyone, welcome to Where Do We Go From Here, a podcast about humans and the questions we have about ourselves and the world, tackling love, social justice, politics, culture, art, and just about anything else. My name is Isaiah, and I'm your host. So this episode is going to be a little bit more different than previous iterations of the show. Um, This is kind of the part where we talk about culture and art in a way, a little bit of religion. Um, Or maybe you might be thinking a lot of bit about religion based on the intro provided by James Baldwin, a talk, an excerpt from a talk that he and Nikki Giovanni had in the 70s. But the title of this episode is called Escaping the Binary for a Reason, because that's exactly what I'm talking about today, primarily from my perspective and from my own lived experience, which is something I've always kind of shared with you guys, as I've always talked about certain topics and different things. But the catalyst for what my experiences and what my teachings have ta- have brought me to is really, you know, was was taken from those topics that, you know, we mentioned, you know, data as a monopoly, um, you know, the whistleblower episode and things like that, um, Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, you know, all those kinds of things had my, you know, had my voice in it, has my experience in it, um, has my own perspective on it. But this one's a little bit more personal. Um, escaping a binary will encompass, you know, the gender binary, the racial binary, the capitalist binary, and different conventional binaries that we live in in our society. Now, I'm not looking to tackle each and every single one of them. I've kind of highlighted three of them that kind of stand out to me and resonate with me right now at this point in my life, which are the ones, the aforementioned ones, you know, gender, racial, and capitalist. So those are kind of things that we'll be bouncing around with today. I'm not going to go in any particular order, and I'm not going to, like, have it broken into certain segments where, you know, it's just race right now and then gender and then capitalist and then religious, you know, nothing like that. It's going to be more of a like, I'll talk about this and then I'll bounce around a little bit. So let's get into it. So I'm pretty sure I've, I've mentioned it before in previous episodes. Um, and for those who, who know me, I identify as non-binary using they, them pronouns. I also identify as queer and quite surprisingly, I am black. <laughs> Not really a surprise. Um, but with that being said, that's the kind of, you know, perspective that I'm coming from. And that's the kind of perspective that, you know, I have my own, my own thoughts and opinions and, and research. And the way I view a lot of things come from those lenses, come from that, that inner, those interlocking identities that I have. And um, one of the things that I've really gotten into this past year or really kind of begin to understand in a level on a level that I haven't done previously before is really prioritizing rest, my relationship with my family, my friends, but above all, 
myself. And part of that played into why it was so easy for me to leave New Jersey um, when I was younger. You know, the main reason was because I was going to college, as a lot of young people do, you know, at my age, you know, going to college, leaving home. That's not an unheard of phenomenon. However, coming to Chicago by myself, you know, without, you know, any family out here or any real solid support system, which I kind of did find almost right away, which I'm thankful for. And my college's Black Student Union, which I went on to, you know, be very involved in. But, you know, it was easy for me to leave home because I was, I didn't, I, I felt like there was a level of growth that I wasn't tapping into in that environment, um, whether it was because of, it was just because it was where I grew up or because of the limitations that I felt constrained by um, due to the beliefs and the, the values and the, the views of my family. Um so, and, and I, I knew for a long time that I never felt like a man. Like, that's something that always just, when people would say, what's up, man? What's up, bro? What's up, dude? Like, all the other kind of stuff. Those are just really frivolous examples. Um, but we, especially man. Bro and dude, eh, whatever. Those could be gender neutral at times. But man, hearing man, it really just never really sat right with me. Even at a really, really, really young age. And I didn't understand the concept of, well, I wasn't introduced, I should say, to the to the notion of being non-binary and using different pronouns until I was a sophomore in high school. And Amanda Stenberg um, came out as non-binary on, on Tumblr. I remember that day I had I was, I was up early for school. Um, I think it was I think for some reason, I think it was just earlier than normal or maybe not. I don't know. But, you know, one on my phone. And I was, they were really active on Tumblr at the time. I was really active on Tumblr at the time. We didn't know each other. That's not where the story is going. <laughs> um, but basically, um, you know, they had a, they posted a video and they, that's what they said. And I was like, whoa, like, that's a thing. Like, I don't, like, I'm like, people also have felt this way before. Now, obviously, I understood that there were transgender people in the world, but First time, it never crossed my mind that that could be me. And I felt like that was because of the way, not the way I was raised, because there was never any kind of blatant homophobia in my family. Well, my sister may disagree because she came out as gay um, around this time. And it was really difficult for her at home. The responses from my mom and my uh I guess stepdad would be uh, an appropriate term. They're not married yet, so that's kind of a weird thing to say. But um, that wasn't the best. That 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 wasn't really good. Um, and then, really, I wanted to say like you know, it was kind of the notion of homophobia in my family is more like you know, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to know about it type thing. And if you really get into it, they'll really start to talk about it. I don't want to talk about any other experiences with my family in that regard. Like some examples I'm thinking of right now, I don't want to because I haven't talked to the people I would be talking about about it. So I don't want to like bring in their story and take that away from them. That's not what I want to do. But nonetheless, like the family just wasn't, you know, it's hard to to say, but they were, it it was homophobic. Um, 
So I couldn't even really think about that because, you know, you go through that whole cycle of, oh, am I gay? Am I this? Am I that? And that gay didn't feel right either because um, I wasn't just attracted to 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 men or nothing like that. Um, I was still attracted to um, to women, gender non-conforming folks and men, I guess. Uh, so for me, it was like a queer kind of felt right for me. It was that it was that umbrella term, that reclaimed term by the community um, that I decided to go with. I wouldn't realize that until I was in college um, that I was queer, but or even non-binary. That also came in college, my my second year in college. So about four years from the time that I first was introduced to the notion of of non-binary. Um, and how that how that can you know really change my life? It's been something that has 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 been with me for the past three years now, and I still find it difficult to you know correct people about it at times and to do that kind of stuff because it's still quite honestly it's really new to me, and I'm I'm learning how to stand up for myself a little bit more. But that made it easier to leave New Jersey because I knew there was a part of me that was screaming to come out, that was begging to come out. And I, it was not being fostered in that environment. So coming to college and the school I went to, Columbia College, everyone that's gone there can attest to this is very gay. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't want to like stereotype it or label or anything like that. But like, you know, it's, it's an environment that is, that is very welcoming. Of, of queer folks, of gay folks, of lesbian folks, of trans folks, um, much, much, you know, I'm not going to try and put them on a pedestal, like the teachers and the staff and the administration, all the other, I'm not going to know. What I mean is like the community of students fostered that kind of, of welcoming environment. Now, there may be some instances that people have had some, not some good experiences or some homophobic remarks or stuff like that. You know, and 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 that's their story to tell and to talk about. I haven't had that experience, um, but overall, and I, I'm I'm with the experience that I'm mentioning is my relationship with the students. You know, you know, staff, faculty, all other kind of stuff is 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 up in the air, and we can that's a different, whole different thing to talk about. But in general, it was a welcoming community. Like I didn't feel like I was. An outsider. I didn't feel like I'd be alienated, alienated as I navigated, you know, the changing of my pronouns and the um, the way I presented, you know, shifting over from a, a really masculine pre- presentation when I was younger to more so um, kind of like getting into more the, the feminine feminine side of it, spectrum of it. So, you know, that was that was that was really big for me coming in there at at eighteen years old, nineteen years old, whatever. I was like, oh, like, I can really, like, explore and figure this out, see if this is for me, and not be judged for it. That's the big thing, is because even talking to my mom about it, very judgmental about the entire thing, and we haven't even really had a real conversation about it. We've had some conversations over the years, like some small ones, but never really got down to the nitty gritty of it. Like why I felt this way and how uncomfortable the notion of being a man felt to me or being perceived in that way felt to me. Like my family doesn't even, you know, I've tried to tell my, 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 my grandma, my dad, my mom, 
And, you know, I have never, you know, they never used the correct pronouns for me or anything like that. That's a different conversation I have with them later on. But nonetheless, and, you know, for me, that gender awakening is, is very, very pivotal for me. And I think that's really kind of shaped my life in a way because it feels so freeing to not be constricted to a gender binary, to not feel as if I have to do this or do that to live up to this notion of being a man. Now, obviously, you can break those conventions of traditional masculinity and those notions of being a man and still identify as a man, still use he, him pronouns. But that didn't feel right to me. Now, I could have been a very feminine man, right? But that didn't feel like that's what I wanted. Um, Being non-binary, using they, them pronouns, just felt good to me. And so nonetheless, you know, getting back to what I was mentioning before, like in, in under, in understanding all of that, that has allowed me to prioritize myself first because that's who I'm with all the time. So I, I'll always, you know, I, I worked a lot, you know, those past few years, but I always, I want to live first and work second. The, the latter of which will never dictate my schedule or life. Now, for those who know me as well, they know I'm in, I want to work in the TV industry, be a showrunner, a writer, all that kind of stuff. And that schedule will and can be very hectic. Um, but that's something I would enjoy doing. So I'm trying to, I'm balancing what feels like work and what I, you know, and what's going to, I guess, bring in income. You know, that, that capitalist notion, you got to work to make some money. Right. Like you can't just do what you want to do and just live the life you want to live. You got to figure out what makes the most money. But this kind of combines that in a way where, you know, the money would be good, but I'm doing it because I want to, not because I have to. And I felt like I was doing a lot of that for a long time. And so work is never, never the top priority in my life. And as I become a writer and as I transition into that industry, it'll you know, hopefully, I don't know how I will feel. I don't want to predict how I will feel, but hopefully, you know, the the euphoric feeling that I get when I'm writing and when I'm expressing myself and when I'm telling stories, creating stories, working with other people to tell those stories doesn't feel like work at all. Like even just working on a, a film I'm working on right now, you know, we've had multiple rehearsals and multiple auditions. Um, and I've been to basically almost every one. You know, there's a couple that I that I, did, I wasn't able to make, but I don't have to, you know, go to these rehearsals. You know, we've had multiple. We had like I think seven or eight rehearsals. I think I've missed maybe two, maybe one, and I don't have to be at all of them. I could only have come to one or two, and that probably would have been it. But I enjoy doing it. It feels good. It's a great environment to be. It does not feel like work to me. And I'm doing it, you know, basically for free. You know, if if the movie makes any money, then, you know, we'll see what happens. But just think of it like, what if it doesn't make any money? It doesn't matter. Like, I'm just, I enjoy doing it. And that's why I'm trying, I'm getting into the field that I'm getting into. But whatever, you know, brings me joy, I will do. I've always especially recently, I've been able to recognize my mortality and my ability to grow and change. You know, I learn more about myself every single day. It is natural to change, to grow, 
to change my mind. <laughs> and I've learned that I will always, always have to reintroduce myself, not only to others, but to myself. I might try to find that cat, the holy, the holy, the holy, the holy who? <laughs> the holy who? <laughs> this has been believed by millions of people yeah, they really who lived did. and died by it for 2,000 years. Yeah. And when you attack it, you're accused of being blasphemous. I think the legend itself is a blasphemy. What is wrong with a man and a woman sleeping together, making love to each other, and having a baby like everybody else? It's true. <laughs> it's not only Why is the Son of God got to be born immaculately? Aren't we all the sons of God? And you'll, you'll hear a few of those snippets throughout this episode from that conversation with, with Baldwin and Nikki Giovanni, but... Their referencing kind of was, you know, the story of Mary and Joseph. And he had just, they were just like talking about it um, before he had gotten into that. And for me, I've always had, you know, a very complicated relationship with religion, I would say. Um, it has not always provided me with hope, faith, or, or pretty much any kind of comfort, as I know it does for some people, especially those that are even in my family. But, you know, because they're, they're Christian and they're, they're pretty, you know, they're pretty religious. Um, but for me, it, I've never really felt comfortable even going into a church. It, nothing, it didn't sit right with me. It felt like, now this is not a knock on anyone who, you know, is a devout religious person, specifically Christianity, because that's where my experience lies in. You know, I've been around people who have practiced, you know, Islam and Judaism and stuff like that. But, you know, my most of my religious perspective comes from um, Christianity um, and the way that my family has, you know, believed in it and, you know, had faith in it for a long time. But for me, I've never, it just always felt like I was being lied to in a way. Or even maybe not lied to, but more so like I couldn't get the answers to the questions that I wanted. And I would ask questions. I've, I think I've been to Sunday school a couple of times. And I'm like, I don't remember the specific questions I had. But these are questions of like, you know, well, first and foremost, how do we know this is true? Right? Um, or what if there's different kind of people? And for me, I think of something as simple logistically, right? They say that the Bible is, you know, the word of God and all the other kind of stuff. So why is it the King James Version of the Bible? Now, the Bible has been translated and reinterpreted across various different languages hundreds of times over the years and rewritten or edited, I should say, by people in power, capitalists in power, um, kings in power. You know what I mean? So it's like, well, why you shouldn't be able to even touch that? And then it goes to the question about what about the people who can't read, not only today, but way back when? How would they know what the word of God is? You have to believe someone else in the same words that they use to, you know, not something profound, but, you know, the same words they use to enslave black people and when they brought them over to America. That's that's what I'm supposed to believe in and think that that's what's going to guide me to the promised land. And these notions of, of, of heaven and hell, it's very acidine where it's just like, is so 
if I don't follow the Bible, if I don't believe in the Bible, I'm I'm going to hell. And how would I know that? Like, what if I'd never read the Bible? Does that mean I'm just going to go to hell by default? Like, what if I'm what if I'm living in a completely different part of the world? Maybe let's not use modern day context. Let's just say a couple hundred years ago. Let's just say I'm living in some remote village in South America. And obviously, I probably have my own notions of a sp- of spiritual beings of an end of a higher power and of a different notion of God, right? Now, why would why is me not believing in your your Christian God going to get me into what I believe heaven is? And that's even if I believe in an afterlife. What if I don't believe in an afterlife? What if I just believe that we're here and then we're phew, we're done, right? I'm still working through what I believe and what I you know want to believe in and stuff like that, but. I guess for me too, religion really gets you through life, right? It kind of allows you to understand your mortality, to understand that, you know, we all know, humans know from not the moment we're born, but not too long after, probably about, depending on when your first instance, when your what your first, you know, um, running with death is like, whether it's a death of a family member or a funeral, a wake. Um, death of a TV character, right? Or something like that. We kind of understand really quickly that we are not here forever. And religion provides this kind of solace in understanding that and being like, all right, I'm not going to be here forever. What's going to happen after I die? So in order to maintain some kind of order and, and not be carnage and chaos all around the world, they're like, well, if you do this, this, and this, you'll have et- you'll have an eternal afterlife of bliss, of comfort, of happiness, X, Y, Z. And if you don't, you're going to burn in hell. The same hell that was described during the days of you know, Christ, I guess, or during that time, I should say, that time period, as a fire dump for literal trash. And they'll be like, oh, you're going to hell, which was lived quite literally down the block, make a left around the corner and this place, this pit that's burning their trash. Right. And now that's been reinterpreted to being a place where you'll have eternal damnation. And nonetheless, for me, it's kind of like I've come to grips with the fact that I will die. I have no, that's not a fear that I have. Most people, you know, have that fear. Now I will leave it, put an asterisk to this and say, I, I have not had a near death experience or anything like that. So maybe in that moment, I may feel differently. I may be like, mm, maybe I want to live a little bit longer. I don't know. But the notion that I'm going to die does not scare me. Um, and a lot of people, you know, if you and if you feel as if you're not afraid of death and there is no order to prevent you from doing something, you know, catastrophic, the world would be in chaos. So religion provides this kind of order, you know, for society as a whole. But also it provides people, you know, with, with something to believe in, something to do, something to have hope in, something to kind of say, you know, the things that are unexplainable at certain times. You can look to the sky and say, you know, that was God. Da, 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 da. But it's like, if that's the case, if that's your argument, why is there any, and this is also a very common argument, you know, why is there even any, why is there poverty in the world? Why are there people, you know, dying for no reason? Why are people getting sick? Why are people, you know, they can go through an entire list of that kind of stuff. And for me, 
you know, the notion of a higher power is like, well, maybe it's, maybe the higher power is neutral. Maybe, you know, if I make something, I can't meticulously look look after it all the time. You know, even if you just think of it, if you, if you have a plant or something, or if you do a science project or something like that, you know, if I have a plant that's growing, you know, I'm going to water it, I'm going to fertilize it, I'm going to put it in the sun and stuff like that. But if I have to step away for a little bit, or if I'm not in the room all the time, what if a a fly lands on it or some kind of, um, some kind of, some kind of bug that eats the plant, you know, something like that. And I'm not there to see it. And then it destroys the plant. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, you know, neutral most of the time. And I might have some intervention, but I'm not preventing anything. And that's one of the things I think about when it comes to, you know, their understanding of, of God and religion. And for me, you know, I think about even on a personal level, like my grandma or my mom or whoever, a lot of people who live in not good conditions who struggle so much, and I feel like they really shouldn't have to struggle. Um, you know, they, they, you know, we'll get to the capitalist notion about a lot of this stuff, but you know, they work really hard and they, and they, they put in the time, the effort, the energy, and there's there's no material gain for them. Like their housing situation doesn't get better. They can't afford this, can't afford that. Not to mention the unprecedented inflation that we're dealing with right now in the country. But nonetheless, it's like, and you believe in God, you know, like you are very devout to your faith. And it's like, you're asking God, you're praying to God, you're doing this, but you still get nothing. You're still in the same position that you were five years ago. You're still saying things will get better, things will get better, things will get better. But it's never gotten better. And then it's kind of like, what if you don't believe in an afterlife, right? Then it's like, why don't you want your heaven, the notion of heaven at least, to be here on earth? Why do you want to, like, and that's, I'm probably going to segue into capitalism or all of this kind of stuff. But, and that's how, and, and then you, so you work your whole life with the idea that you'll, you'll, fa- you'll have eternal happiness or bliss afterwards. But no matter how religious you are, it's kind of like that is not guaranteed because what if I do something or do certain things that I think are, you know, pretty okay, but in the eyes of some higher power is a ticket for me to go to their notion of hell. Right. So now it's like, all right, I live an okay life, a pretty neutral life or whatever life I make my mistakes. I have my sins here and there, whatever. I do some good. I give back. I help. I love, I care, all the other kind of stuff. And then I go through hell here on earth with with all of that just to get to the end and there might be nothing there or I might go into hell or the no- idea of heaven is different. Like I, it's, it's a lot to really get into. This isn't a religious episode, so I don't really want to I'm not going to nitpick or dive too much into it because this is just me being you know vulnerable and escaping that binary of religion, quite honestly. Um, you know, this doesn't mean that I will never be religious. You know, there's always time for an improvement and, and well, improvement is not the word I wanted to use at all. Um, there's always time to, to grow and to change my mind, right? I might grow into a place where religion may be something that I kind of want, or it may be something that I don't want at all, which is kind of where I am right now. But like I said, you're con- I'm constantly in- reintroducing myself not only to others but to myself so religion may play a part in that someday it may not but for me it's 
it's it's I've I've escaped that binary to kind of not question anything. I feel like when you're religious or very religious, you tend not to ask certain questions because the quote unquote answers have been given to you already, which quite honestly is very comforting. It's kind of comforting to, you know, wake up and to have this book and it'd be like, oh, all my answers that I need in life are right here. Yay. That does not do anything for me because it's not proven. It's at best for me, the way the Bible operates, I'll say. Um, For me, it's a collection of stories and it can give me, it can bring me joy it can bring me, you know, um, comfort. It can let me have faith in something. It can let me have hope in something. Like even if you read a regular, a regular narrative book, a regular novel, like you know, it, it it makes you feel something. And I feel like at best, that's what the Bible does. But I'm not entirely convinced that it is some kind of innate doctrine that is a blueprint for our lives, just by the simple fact that it says the King James version on the front. That is, that will be the starting point for any of my religious debates. And then it will go deeper than that. But, and then you talk about things such as, you know, homosexuality or being gay, which is part of my identity. So now it's like, well, now am I not going to to heaven because of who I love or who I may love or who I'm capable of loving? Isn't that the whole message of the Bible anyway? To love, to love thy neighbor or some, some shit like that, right? Like, you should love people regardless of anything, unless someone is actively causing harm to you or perpetuating some kind of ideals that will harm you later on. What does who I love have to do with anything in your life at all? I'm not going to like, it's just, and then that's, then that, then that's changed over the years too, where it's kind of like, you know, you see in, in the Bible, the original version is like, you know, man shut out man, lie with a, a little a little boy you know pedophiles you should not be sleeping with a child that's what that that that's and and then people can reinterpret it different kinds of ways and that's also the thing too the bible is in, interpreted differently by different people but to me that means you should not be having sex with little boys and what do we see run rampant in a catholic church priests molesting little children it's like so they, so what you, so you edit the Bible to fit your narrative of what's happening because you know that pedophilia runs com- very rampant in our society. You know, just seeing over the news all the time. Look at Jeffrey Epstein, Jesus, Christmas, you know that kind of stuff, or Jared Fogle, the guy from Subway, all of that kind of stuff. But you can't condemn them in a religious context because the Bible has been reinterpreted to make it seem as if that what I just said is. A man shall not lie with another man, meaning no homosexuality. When that's not the case at all. Like, that's not what it is at all. And homosexuality dates back hundreds, thousands of years. Like, if, if I, if I figure out that this part of my body feels good when it's rubbed a certain kind of way and someone else is next to me that I, that I can also make feel good in that kind of way in terms of sex, you know, does it really matter if that is someone who has biologically male reproductive parts or biologically female reproductive parts if they have just a butt <laughs> or if they have a, or if they have you know a you know a vagina and a vulva and a butt too or whatever like you know that's kind of I didn't expect to see all of that <laughs> but I mean it's it's true like there's no innate way to be like oh that's not true and if we're and if and then you also want to go into other things in the bible like aren't we made in God's image 
don't we all embody what Christ is? And then what James Baldwin said, why does the son of Christ, if we're all, if we are all made in God's image and if we're all the son of Christ, isn't, isn't what, how does anything we do wrong in that kind of context? Like I said, unless it's harming someone else, which is what we're really, what the real message of that book is saying is like, you're not causing harm unto anyone else. You're living joyously. You're living peacefully, lovingly, all that other kind of stuff. But yet we, we have wars that happen for no reason at all. But then we have, then we fund those wars, but then we have people in our own countries and our own neighborhoods starving and they can't eat and they can't, they don't have a place to sleep. They don't have any water to drink. They don't have a good education. Like it just doesn't make any sense at all. So that's, you know, that's like my, it's just, it's been really difficult for me to really come to, to figure out what religion means or, or is just because of, of things like that. God for them seems to be some, some metaphor for purity and for safety. You know, the whole heart of the Christian legend has always been, in some sense, impressing as being, you know, really obscene. And it's the key to all the dirty jokes which come afterwards. I will say this. If there is one thing I know how to do, it is rant. <laughs> that religious segment is, should not have been that long. But it's, you know, you, you talk about what you feel and how it's, how it's impacting you. Um, so I, I don't, you know, I'm not perfect and I don't, I don't feel bad for how long that may have been or for who may disagree with it or what have you. But, you know, well, one thing I have I'm very aware about and something I'm very, um, you know, informed about and my own experience has given me my own information and my own perspective and all other kind of stuff is the idea and notion of race. And I'm not going to really go too crazy with this one, hopefully, um, because, you know, I've already talked about it before in previous episodes and it's, you know, so very well documented. But, you know, race in general is a state of mind. You know, white and blackness means nothing inherently. Whiteness does not exist without blackness. They create blackness to have to be the opposite of it. So they, they label you. And he put certain things onto who you are and to what, what you can be or what you can't be and stuff like that, just so that they could be the opposite. There is, if you look at what white culture is, there's not much to look at unless you want to start naming shit like colonialism, imperialism, disease, you know, all of that kind of nonsense, um, which is inherent to all white people. You know what I mean? So that's not even, that's not even accurate. But if you look at black culture and what blackness means, you get an entire, you get a plethora of stories. You have different diasporas of where black people exist. Black people exist everywhere in this world, right? So, you know, you know, for me, escaping, you can't really escape that racial binary, especially as long as capitalism exists, because as you mentioned before, racism does not exist without capitalism and capitalism does not exist without racism. There has to be some kind of oppressive you know, regime in place. Um, and, you know, race is normally at the forefront of that. And then, you know, they have, you know, patriarchal stuff, you know, you know, sexism, homophobia, you know, things like that. Um, you know, Islamophobia, more so, um, more so, you know, religions and stuff like that, you know, all that kind of stuff plays into the way, you know, capitalism and racism work. And, to really escape capitalism, you got to leave that oppressive and imperialist imagination. You're living within their imagination all the time. 
you want to always hustle and grind and work and make as much money as possible without any regard to who's being impacted by your hustle, that's capitalism. The same system that has oppressed marginalized groups for hundreds of years. Before that, you have slavery. Before that, you have the feudal system. And all of those things have similar things in common. That, that case system of oppression, of taxing people, of making them work and produ- and, and their labor produce so much profit and they don't even see it. You know, you work, you know, just take an example of working at like a restaurant or something like that. You work a shift and let's just say you just do something like work the cash register. You'll ring in probably, depending on the restaurant, depending on how, how high volume it may be, you'll probably ring in a few thousand dollars a day. You know what I mean? Like I said, every restaurant is different. Every whatever is, you know, different, you know, in a city, in a suburb, and it's different. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, at a restaurant, you're probably not making, you're definitely, you're probably definitely not making more than 20 bucks an hour. And that's, and if you're making more than that, you're probably looking at manager and supervisor salary. But if you're just a, a worker, a cook, a cashier, and I know this from my own experience because I've worked in numerous restaurants, you're making below minimum wage because they say that you will get tips, which tips are never guaranteed. You may be ha- you may have the slowest day, but that rate doesn't change. It's not like if you don't make any tips, they'll raise your hourly pay. They'll raise your hourly pay. They don't. So it's like, you know, you're at a job, you're making twelve fifty an hour plus tips or whatever. It's a variable. And, you know, now you're within that confines and you've you've rung in, you've brought in profit that's let's just say let's just say three thousand dollars. Let's just say that. Let's pick that number. And you only made in the, let's say three thousand dollars for the day, and you worked the eight hour shift and you only you know, your shift at the end of the shift you probably only bring in about a hundred and $18 or some shit like that. I'm not the best with math, so I'm just pulling these numbers out my ass. <laughs> um, I didn't like think about that before. But like, you know what I mean? But the, you see what I'm saying? Like, you, you, but then there's the people that's gonna be like, oh, the overhead, all oh, the business expenses, duh, 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 duh. bullshit. Bull fucking shit. After all of that is done, they still make a profit way more than what you will take home for that day. So you have to exist outside of of their imagination. You know, all of these binaries that exist specifically with capitalism. And, you know, I'm not trying to make this a capitalist episode, like trying to go to that because there will be future episodes on this topic, very in-depth. And there have already been episodes on it that I've done that are in-depth about it. But it's just like that you're existing in someone else's fantasy. You're living out their dream. You're not living out your dream. And now the step that people have taken with that is I'm not going to work for anyone else. I'm going to work for myself. I'm going to create a business. That's still capitalism. You're just changing the way you participate in it. Instead of being the worker, you're now the capitalist. Instead of being exploited, you're exploiting people. It doesn't, now the cycle just continues. And you're not, and what service are you actually providing to people? Are you really changing their material conditions? You're just changing yours. And that's the mindset that they've given to a lot of people. And I see that all the time, especially in marginalized communities, especially my community, the black community. And it's very disheartening at times because it's like you're just doing what, they're, what they've done to you. Like the answer to capitalism is not black capitalism. 
You have to overthrow all of that to truly and really be free. You're not free in this world. How are you free if the moment that you're born, they tell you how you should act? They tell you you're a man or you're a woman. And because of how you were born, which we have no control over. Well, actually, science has evolved, whereas you can manipulate um, the reproductive organs of the child <clears throat> before they come out. But nonetheless, let's just let's keep let's stay on track. Um, you know, you there's no like you don't know if you don't know like there's no there's no blueprint to like oh you're gonna be a, a you're gonna be you're gonna have these this these parts when you come out like it doesn't but they tell you as soon as you're born you're a man or you're a woman. And depending on what family you're born into, they tell you right away what religion you're going to follow. And then depending on what socioeconomic status your family has, that's how your life is going to be. And this is the predetermined destiny of your life based off of what zip code you live in. You know, whether it's your family only brings in $60,000 a year or $60 million a year or $6 million a year. Right. So it's like that in it itself is already telling you that you're not really you're not really free you're not living a life that you probably would if you didn't have to deal with those diff- if you didn't have to deal with those binaries those conventional definitions of what life should be in our society and then they tell you you know you go to school you got to go to school and then you gotta go to college. Or then you gotta go to college. Then you gotta get then you gotta get married. Then you gotta have a house. Then you gotta have kids. Then you gotta work a nine to five to the day that you die. And you gotta prioritize work all the time. This is primarily an American um point of view. That's where I'm at right now. I'm in Chicago right now. This is primarily American. A lot of other countries don't prioritize work over their life. Um, but in America they do. So that's also part of the respect perspective that I bring to this. But and how is that free? How is that free when you're being told what to do every step of the way for your life? It's not like it's just suggestions. Now people may have followed this and it works for them because because that could work for somebody, but it does not work for everyone. Everyone does not want to go to college. Everyone does not want to own a house. Everyone does not want to have kids. Everyone does not want to get married. Everyone does not want to prioritize work over their life. Everyone does not want to work a nine to five. So for some people, that's what they want to do. And that is the life that they can live. But everyone should not be subjected to the desires of only a few. Quite frankly, the pressure we have is just completely unhuman. The workload, the discrimination the uncertainty of our purpose, and the fear that we are constantly around and fed is just not right. You know, a lot of us live our lives in fear, in fear of death, in fear of homelessness, in fear of discrimination, in fear of poverty. And a few of those things are man-made. Poverty, man-made. Homelessness, man-made. Death, Inherent from the day that we are born. From the second you are born, you are immediately on a path to death. It is inevitable. But a lot of the stuff that we fear, a lot of the things that are behind the uh, the rhetoric of politicians is completely man-made. Complaining about race and of crime and stuff like that. That is not 
something that's inherent to people. It's just not. But one thing that is inherent to people, and I think we all should have the pleasure of being able to experience and being able to give, is love. <laughs> all right? To love and to be loved. And it's one of the many things that I, I've never been able to control because you can't control love. But I've always longed for it um, in a way that I'm sure many other people do. And I say this because, you know, growing up, I didn't get, I don't want to say I didn't get love from my parents or from my family, but I was never, it was, I wasn't loved the way that I would have liked to be loved. My parents were really busy when I was growing up. Um, cause a lot of these man made problems I just mentioned. You know, my mom was a single mom early on in my life with me and my sister. So she had to work a lot. Um, I always still felt the love though. So I don't want that to be clouded in whatever I'm going to say going forward. My parents loved me a lot. They love me, my siblings a lot and they will do anything for us. They are, you know, at, at the, at the foundation, they're, they're loving and they are, pretty decent parents. Um, but my father was incarcerated for a while. Didn't really get a chance to build a relationship with him um, over the years until about now might be able, we've gotten way better, but you know, it, it was, you know, when he was coming home from, from prison and turning his life around and getting back on a track that he wanted, the life that he wanted to live, you know, there wasn't really any conversation about, what I wanted to do or how I wanted to get things done or stuff like that. Um, you know, obviously your parents ask about it, but it wasn't like a real, it didn't feel like the support I needed at the time. He was giving me support, but not the support I needed. My mom, she had just got into a relationship and she had a couple of, she had three other kids. Um, so that left me and my sister on the outskirts in a way because she's raising three babies and maintaining the household and maintaining a relationship. So, and then we could talk about that in itself, that example, that she could be an example of the binaries that we live in. Um, But I'm not going to get into that. But, you know, so for me, I didn't get, sum it all up. I didn't get the attention I needed from my parents, um, from my dad or from my mom. Um, So for me, that kind of, that kind of, ostracized me. My sister was, did not like that at all. Um, she felt really unloved by a lot of that. And she sought community and other people, her friends, which a lot of people do. I also, you know, sought community and love and my friends, but I also just kept busy. You know, I just, I did, I did summer college prep programs. I did sports, did all the after school clubs I could do got an after-school job, and then eventually I moved to Chicago. Not because I don't love my family or anything like that, but because there wasn't any there wasn't any attention given to me. I wasn't loved in a way that made me feel like I needed to stay there, if that makes sense. So I was, it was easy, like I, like I was talking about before, it was easier for me to leave because of that. Because I'm like, there is no... But there's no notion of family here. There is no, we don't gather for holidays. My parents haven't been in the same room in years. 
I've never been in the same room with them in years. Like, it's it's hard. Like, all right, so what is there for me to do? I have to I have to go different, go back and forth between different places because you guys don't get along. Put your differences aside and be there for your kids. That's just my perspective on it. Like, be there for us. Give us that image. That was never there. Like, I saw my dad, my mom's boyfriend get into fist fights. Like, okay, like, that's normal to see at 10, 11, 12 years old. My mom and my dad cursing each other out all the time. Like, that's 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 great examples of love, right? Like, it was just, it made it easier for me to, to step away and also put myself first. Because my family, it always felt like they've put other they never put me first. So it never felt like I had to put them first. Now, the way I view family and the way that they exist in my life is that I do, you know, want to have a relationship with my my parents and my siblings as they grow up and stuff like that. Like that is important to me. But it was never it it never hindered what I wanted to do. Like it didn't make me stay in New Jersey. And sometimes my dad, he hasn't explicitly said it, but you can hear it in his tone in the way that our conversations go that he would he would want me to stay like they would want me home or around and that's the kind of feeling that you get around other people too when you when I come back to visit it's like you know Isaiah's not here da, da, da. but it's like I, there was nothing here for me like my family was busy just existing and just not existing excuse me surviving they were just busy surviving and getting their own life together and this is the this is the humanness you got to look at your parents with as well cuz our parents are human they're not superheroes they're not they don't have everything figured out they aren't perfect right as i've gotten older i've understood that um as a 16 15 year old that's kind of hard to understand but it wasn't too hard for me but it was still like come on guys like what am i going to do so for me i've always felt like i've been alone in my life and i've always felt like i've had to figure things out on my own because I've never had that example or model of family. You know, they say it, they talk about it, but that's not, it's not enough all the time. Love is an action. Obviously, we say it a lot. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. But love is an action. And it can be hard to love and to receive it if it's a new experience for you, which to me, it is. I was, and then even to another side of it, I wasn't really in romantic relationships because I didn't know how to love or be loved. I never had an example of it. So I got to just do it. So I get into relationships. I got to just figure out how do I love? How do I do this? How do I, whatever. And all you have is what you know. And it really bears responsibility to ensure your love or their love is not substituted with pain, rage, trauma, or anger, which is a lot of times brought into what you want to be in a loving relationship. You want it to be loving, but you bring in all these things with it. So until you can really practice love in all areas of your life, it will be extraordinarily difficult to give and receive love with anyone else, let alone a potential partner. And that's what I've struggled with. And struggling with it doesn't mean that I'm incapable of it or that I don't deserve it. But at times, it's felt like that. It's felt like more so 
deserving of it. I feel like I'm capable of loving because I've, I've done it before. And I feel like when I love, I love hard, loyal. I don't know. I don't really have the, the words to describe it. Um, but when I love, I love. You know, it, you know, if you've really been in love, it's kind of hard to describe it, right? <laughs> um, but for me, it's it's been a, a real journey in that regard because it doesn't come as naturally as talking in public comes to me, right? Or writing a speech or being an activist or writing a story. Those are can be difficult at times, but to love and to be loved is something that I really have wanted. And I really didn't admit that to myself until probably, quite honestly, a few months ago. Um, I would say, and largely in part thanks to when Adele released her, her new album, um, Dirty. And so I was just like, that. Like I do want to love. I want to be loved. And I want to give love in, in various different ways. I do it all the time with my friends. But also, I want to do that romantically, too. And I don't... At first, I would... Quite honestly, I was I was shameful of it in a way. I didn't think I I deserved to to be loved, or or that I would mess up loving someone else, which we do all the time. Like it, love is a learning experience. There will be times where it can be painful. Now that is not an excuse to physically assault someone, to verbally assault someone or to cause harm in any kind of way. What I mean by that is the growing pains that come with love, the change in the way that you navigate, and learning how to love someone else. You know, they have things such as, you know, love languages. And, you know, obviously there's more than just five love languages. But if you want to break it down into those things, um, you know, figuring out how to do that. Maybe the person that you're with is very physical and they love physical touch they love words of affirmation and you're probably the opposite maybe you like active service and just quality time and you got to figure out how to love your partner in a way that they want to be loved as the way that they do as well they have to figure out how to love you in a way that you like to be loved and that can be painful that can be difficult that can be uncomfortable it can be different but it will be worth it. And for me, that's, it's part of, it's part of what I want in life. Um, it's not at the forefront of my mind all the time because I put myself first, um, loving myself more and standing up for myself more is something that I've really prioritized recently, like the way I do for others. Um, you know, there may be some pain, there may be some sorrow, some hurtful things. But the love I have for myself will be better than any love that anyone can give me, including family. And I'm subverting myself from your imagination. That is not me. I'm not bound by your standards. And by no means do I have to respect it. And it's been, it's been a journey. <laughs> it's, all, it's all been a journey to figure it's all out. And the thing is, too, you don't really figure it out. Life is all about just going through it and learning from it, growing, changing, changing your mind. And that's okay. That is okay. The way you think now may not be the way you think 
in a few years. Just take it from like the universal, the universal like example you can give. You do not think the same way that you were when you were 12 that you did when you were 22. And I know that I'm not going to think the same way 10 years from now. I'm not. If I, if I think the same exact way I think now, 10 years from now, what's the point of me even doing anything? Because that means I've just, I've stagnated and that there is nothing that would make my life better. Right? So for me, I guess to, to end this episode, I really just want to emphasize, you know, how, as, as cliche as some of it may sound, you know, is, is loving yourself and, and really, really, really understanding what that means. It's not just a bubble bath and writing in a journal and all the other kind of stuff, although those are very helpful. <laughs> but what I really mean by that is, is stopping and reflecting on your life and really figuring out where to hold yourself accountable in what you do and in what you say. And how can you change that for the better? How can you critique yourself and make yourself better? Not by the standards of society or by stereotypes or by binaries, but for you, what makes you feel good in your own body? You only have, to our knowledge, one life. Live it the way you want to live it. Now, when I say that, as I've said before, this does not give you any permission to harm anyone in any kind of way. But live the life that you want to live. Love who you want to love. Care for who you want to care. Live a life of, of compassion, of grace, of care, of giving, of love. And all of that, not only outwardly, but inwardly. Take care of yourself. And, and, and break, break, break those, break, break out of their imagination. Live in your own imagination. Care for what you want to care for, love what you want to love, and be there, most importantly, and above all, for yourself. I suppose it occurs on two levels. One is inside, one is outside. So that finally, or first of all, perhaps, liberty is the individual passion or will to be free. But this passion, this will, is always contradicted by the necessities of the state. Everywhere. Well, as long as we've heard of mankind, as long as we've heard of states. I don't know if it'll be like that forever. It, for a black American, for a black inhabitant of this country, the Statue of Liberty is simply... Um, a very bitter joke.